Welcome to Knowing Him. This is Steve Danielson. And this is Angie Danielson. Join us each week as we explore the hymns of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and share our feelings, insights, and reflections about how each one brings us closer to Jesus Christ. Enjoy your favorites and find some undiscovered gems in our journey to knowing Him. Welcome, friends, to today's episode of Knowing Him. I'm your host, Steve Danielson, and I'm here with my rejoicing co-host, Angie. Hi. <laughs> Are you feeling rejoicing today, Angie? Um, at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so I am excited for today's hymn, Angie. We are talking about hymn number 66, Rejoice the Lord is King. This hymn corresponds with the Come Follow Me reading. There's a lot of them today. Matthew 21 to 23, Mark 11, Luke 19 to 20, and John 12. You got a big section. Yeah. So I'll tell you why I'm excited. Uh, so this week captures one of my favorite mental images, uh, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. I love imagining that scene and what it may have been like. I love the imagery, which I'm sure you'll talk about later. Uh, however, it also saddens me a bit because I know that this is the beginning of the last week of Jesus's life, uh, which means that we are leading up to his crucifixion. Won't come for several more weeks, but we are leading up to it. However, the crucifixion then leads to the resurrection, which makes me happy again. So, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so I'm okay. <laughs> uh, and with that jumble of emotion, <laughs> I will turn the mic over to Angie, who is leading our discussion today. Okay. So our hymn today is Rejoice, the Lord is King. Um, and this is one that's pretty well known in the church, and we sing it a lot. Um, so, But I didn't know anything about... The man who wrote the words or the composer of the music, so this was interesting. Um, so Charles Wesley wrote the the words, and he was born in 1707 in England. He died in 1788, and he was another one of the greatest hymn writers of all time. Seems like we have several of those. <laughs> <laughs> who really was the greatest? We'll have to have a competition one day. That's right. I don't know if they're what they're measuring, like how many hymns they wrote. Yeah, or, I don't know. Although I will say Charles Wesley may have the prize for the best hair. Yeah. <laughs> He's got some amazing hair, so look him up. Although that's probably a wig. Uh, probably, <laughs> but good wig. Yeah. <laughs> so he was the youngest of 18 kids, 18 which I kids. thought, I'm the youngest of eight, and <laughs> it Holy seems cow. weird <laughs> that it would be 18, uh, like 10 more kids than in my family. I wonder how many of those survived to adulthood. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. Um and I read that he became one of the first band of Oxford Methodists, so I wondered what that meant, and I looked on a website called uminsight.net, which means United Methodist Insight, mm -hmm. um, and it said, the first rise of Methodism began at Oxford in the 1720s when Charles Wesley assembled a small group of friends to attempt to grow in faith by strictly following the discipline of the university for academic and spiritual rigor. So being very methodical. Yeah. Charles was actually the first to be called a Methodist, as others teased him for sticking so closely to the school's method. Charles had felt a spiritual drought in his soul and hoped that regular scripture, prayer, fasting, and communion would help him connect once more to God. Charles welcomed brother John's organizational leadership and several similar small groups formed across campus. They soaked up the scriptures and the spiritual classics. They were inspired to become a community that literally embodied Acts 2, 42 to 47, 
not only through works of piety, devotional act focus on loving God, but also through works of mercy, particularly their giving their money to the poor, taking time to educate and provide for those in need, and thanks to one of their members, William Morgan, regularly visiting prisoners. Charles would later invite George Whitefield to their group, and though he was reluctant at first because of the derogatory treatment of this Oxford club um, met from peers and professors alike, Whitefield would become one of the group's most faithful and famous members. Or maybe that's Whitfield. Anyway... I thought that was really cool. That I didn't realize that the Methodist Church had started. It's kind of like as a club yeah. at Oxford University. That was in the 1720s. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like they were trying to do good things. Yeah, it sounds like some others. really good Christian um, motives there, visiting prisons and giving money to the poor and helping those that were sick and afflicted. I mean, that's exactly what Jesus would have done himself. Yeah, so I wanted to read this scripture that it said their their cause embodied Acts two forty two to forty seven. Says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Sounds like they, like the, well, this sounds like the law of consecration, you know, Mm -hmm. helping each other. They were... They were a group that wanted to help each other and others yeah. and do good. So, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Well, I liked that story. Um, I thought this was interesting. In 1735, he went to Georgia as secretary to General Oglethorpe for a year. So um, General Oglethorpe was somebody we learned about when I was homeschooling <laughs> my son, Jeremiah. And he had um, gone over to Georgia to help with the colony there and um, had brought, I think, I believe that there were like prisoners that were brought there, Mm. kind of like um, giving them a new start um, in a new place. So prisoners from England. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I thought that was interesting. He became a field preacher, meaning he'd go travel around and preach and his wife would go with him. He did that until about 1856, and then later he went and worked with prisoners again. So I guess okay. that goes back yeah. to, to what he was doing in college. Um, well, it said he was very strict to his method. Yeah. <laughs> he was troubled about, um, like, the Methodist views he had and the Church of England and how that kind of conflicted, but when he died, he still wanted to be buried by the Church of England and hmm. have his funeral you know, there and, and be buried in their churchyard. So they had they officially sort of become their own church by that point, I don't, or did I don't, that happen not after that I read. Death? I don't know. Not that I read. I'll but have to look into that. Yeah, I have to look that up. Um, he wrote over 6,500 hymns, wow. so quite a lot. <laughs> And the ones that we have in our hymn book that he wrote besides Rejoice the Lord is King are Jesus, Lover of My Soul, 
ye simple souls who stray. Here's one for Easter. Christ the Lord is risen today. So I almost I love picked that one, that one instead of Easter morn, but <laughs> yeah. we'll come back to that one next year. And Hark the Herald Angels Sing, so one of our Christmas songs, and Come Let Us Anew. So I always like to hear that those ones that we all sing all the time, and you don't really think about who wrote them like we talked yeah. about before. So it's neat to, to hear about who wrote, wrote those hymns. And, and like <clears throat> you were telling me last night, like sometimes we read these things like, oh, there's this prolific hymn writer, but like we only have one of oh, him. Hymns. But we have several of them from... Charles Wesley. Yeah, and um, it I, it said in one of the articles I read that most, of course, if he was Methodist, you know, if he started kind of the Methodist movement, then a You'll lot of his hymns are in yeah. the Methodist hymn books. So there was one that was like he had almost the majority of the hymns. I can't remember the numbers, but it's like out of 760 hymns, he had like 690 or something. You know, it was like almost the entire hymn book. You know, it was pretty funny. And all the other Methodists were like, please use my music too. That's I'm, right. I'm writing a hymn. <laughs> so um, I know you have some information on the tunes that this song has been set to, but probably back in, in his day, it was put to different tunes than we sing it to now. Um and one of them was the tune to Arise, O God, and Shine, which is a hymn in our hymn book, number 265. It's called Darwall. Did you want to talk about the other well, I'll, tunes? Well, I'll talk about that one as well. So the when I was looking up the, the tune to this on hymnary, um, the, the tune that we have in our hymn book, which we'll talk about in a second, uh, is actually sort of a small minority. Like, we're one of the few that actually use this tune. The most common tune uh, is the one that you just referred to, Darwall. That's the most common tune. If you find another hymn book, it's most likely going to be to to this tune. Um, and as you said, it, in our hymn book, it's the tune to Arise, O God, and Shine. So it sounds like, Rejoice, the Lord is King, your Lord and King adore. Rejoice, give thanks and sing and triumph evermore. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again, I say rejoice. Yeah, I like that. That's yeah, nice. I, one of the things I like about it, uh, which actually is similar to the tune that we use, uh, is it sort of has this building, you know, from low to high, and you end on this sort of a triumphant note at the end of yeah. the verse. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, it gives that rejoicing. Anyway, the other most common uh, tune is actually from George Frederick Handel. Uh, it's called Gopsal yeah. for some reason. <laughs> really G-O-P-S-A-L, Gopsal. I'm not sure how they'd say it, um, but it when I look at it, I want to say gospel. Yeah, but that's not what me it is. too. It's gospel. <laughs> um, and this tune is a little bit different. See if I can sing this one. <laughs> Rejoice, the Lord is King, your Lord and King adore. Mortals give thanks and sing, and triumph evermore. Lift up your, lift up your heart, lift up your voice. 
Rejoice again, I say rejoice. Yeah, that one's not, I don't like that one as much because <laughs> it goes down. It doesn't go up. And yeah, I think we're, we're so used to that sort of building, building up yeah. building up as we go through the melody and this one doesn't have it. But yeah. uh, that's probably the most second common tune you'll find it um, in other hymn books. So I wonder which one it was sung to back in Charles Wesley's day. Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. Possibly the the Handel, because um, I believe Handel is credited with the music for Hark the Herald Angels Sing as well. Huh. Um, Maybe. If I'm remembering correctly. Anyway. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, hard to know unless we go back in time. So our current tune is called Jubilate. Is that Jubilate, how you say Jubilate? Yeah. <laughs> um, which means joyful, doesn't it? Rejoice. Rejoice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so rejoice, the Lord is king. And it's by Horatio Parker. He was born in 1863 in Massachusetts and died in 1919 in New York. So he didn't live anywhere near the time of Charles Wesley. So his <laughs> tune wouldn't have been used by him. Um, but he studied music in Europe, which was common at the time. And he was an organist in various churches. Mm -hmm. um, he was a professor of music for two years at the Cathedral School of St. Paul in Long Island. And then he was a professor at Yale and became the dean of music at Yale for the rest of his life. Um, I thought it was interesting that he was part of a national fraternity for men in music called Phi Mu Alpha Symphonia. So <laughs> I never heard about that when we were in college. <laughs> Our college did not offer that. <laughs> uh, so one thing about his time at Yale, uh, one of his students, and this is actually one of the things that Horatio Parker is known for, one of his students was a young composer named Charles Ives. Yeah, I read um, about that. that but cool. Charles Ives was rather dismissive. Um, it, later in his life, sort of tried to distance any influence Parker had on him. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I wonder why that was. Well, Parker's music was much more in the neo-romantic uh, movement. Uh, very conservative, very European-based, has a very Germanic feel to it, whereas Ives was much more experimental. Uh, he was influenced by composers like Richard Strauss, uh, who was writing wild operas um, mm -hmm. like Salome at the at the turn of the century. Um, in fact, in in one of the classes that he had with Parker, um, Horatio Parker quipped something about, "I don't have time for this nonsense or whatever that Strauss is writing," and Ives is reported to have said, you're just jealous because you couldn't write something like that yourself. <laughs> so, so they were and, at odds with each other. Yeah, and, and Parker's music uh, Parker's music is good. I mean, it, it's very um, it's very well crafted. It's good. It's just not experimental. You know, at the beginning of the 20th century you see this real divide in the direction that music goes between sort of the avant-garde experimental and the more conservative side of things. Mm -hmm. And these two were on sort of different sides, sides of that yeah. uh, of that path. So for those who don't know, can you tell like what Charles Ives is famous for? Oh, just he, a lot of experimental work. I mean, he's he's got music where it sounds like there's multiple bands playing at the same time um, in different meters and different keys. And I mean, he's, he had some really interesting ideas. Some really great pieces as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting um, that they worked together. 
Um, so Horatio Parker wrote a famous oratorio called Ora Novissima. Yeah, that's probably his most famous piece. Yeah. Uh, cantata or oratorio, yeah. And then it says he also wrote two operas, one called Mona and one called Fairyland. Yeah, interesting. He actually uh, won competitions with both of those yeah. and received $10,000 for each one of them. Yeah, which, I read that. I mean, I'd, <laughs> You'd love that. <laughs> yeah. But that's a good payment for writing a whole opera. So. And back then that was a lot more money, yeah. so it'd probably <laughs> be even more nowadays. Um, so I liked what um, Karen Davidson said in our Latter-day Hymns about what we were talking about with this tune that we have in our hymn book about the upward motion mm-hmm. of the notes. Um, I was going to read this here. Let me see. It says... The tune is a wonderful complement for the words. In the chorus, particularly, each segment of the melody rises upwards like the text. The music is sequentially climactic. Um, so you can see, like, you can you can hear it in the music. It's like, lift up your heart, you know, and it, like, goes up and up and up and up. And I love that. I think it, that's why I don't like that other tune, because <laughs> it goes back <laughs> down and the notes go back down. Um it says, the repetition of rejoice in the chorus grows to a triumphant swell. The words lift up are repeated four times in the chorus as the pattern of the tune rises to match the sense of the words. The word again, part of the verse from Philippians, which we'll read in a minute, as well as Charles Wesley's hymn text, imply that rejoicing is never to cease. Yeah, I like that. So, yeah. The rejoicing just keeps going. Yeah. And there's actually... an fourth verse that we don't have in our hymn book. Um, it says, Rejoice in glorious hope. Our Lord the judge shall come and take his servants up to their eternal home. Is that in those other versions? Yeah, this uh, this one I'm looking at it even has a fifth verse. Oh, interesting. Which ones does it have? Rejoice the Lord is king. The Lord the savior looks reigns. It's like the fifth verse here is this one that I just his read. Kingdom fell. Yeah, so it looks like there's a fourth verse here that's not in either place here. He sits at God's right hand till all his foes submit and bow to his command and fall beneath his feet. Hmm. Interesting. I didn't see that one on hymnary either. I only saw this, this fourth verse. Maybe whoever made that hymn book wrote it. <laughs> it's Could like a, be. It's like a W.W. Phelps sort of thing. <laughs> that's right. Um, so... We were talking about earlier that this this hymn is referring to the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. So I wanted us to read that that section um, in Matthew 21. You want to read it? Sure. How much do you want me to read? Um, read this whole like one through eleven. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come out to Beth uh, to Bethphage, I don't know that word. I've never noticed that before. Sorry. Unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, you shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, 
Tell ye the daughter of Sion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass, and the colt the foal of an ass. The disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put, him on, put on them their clothes, and set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way, others cut down branches from the trees, and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed, crying, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Oh, this was a very joyful moment. Um, and um, so this song really reflects that, you know, like uh, just this first verse. Rejoice, the Lord is king, your Lord and king adore. Mortals give thanks and sing and triumph evermore. And that's kind of how we picture this moment happening. You know, everybody was singing in triumph, in triumph because they, they felt like, their savior had come yeah. at last, even though they didn't understand what that meant. <laughs> um, and then lift up your heart, lift up your voice. Rejoice again, I say rejoice. So, now this is a beautiful, beautiful part of the, of the last week of Jesus's life before, before all the sadness. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other two scriptures that go along that are at the bottom of the page in the hymn book, which I love that we have have those down there, you know, and you can look up scriptures that go along with the hymns. Um, one of them is Philippians four four, and that's the one that's often referenced um, with this hymn. If I can even find Philippians, there it is. So it's a short little verse that just says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. So it's kind of got that repeating, and again mm -hmm. I say rejoice. So, um, yeah, he, Charles Wesley may have, you know, taken his idea from this scripture in Philippians. And then the other one that it references is Psalm 3211. Let me turn um, and it says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. So, that's all I have. I, <laughs> and it is a great hymn. I love to sing it. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember in which account it is, um, but in one of the accounts of the triumphal, triumphal entry, um, the Pharisees say to Jesus, Couldn't, Can't you keep your followers quiet? Tell them all to be quiet, and his response: If I, if I told them to be quiet, then the very rocks themselves would cry out in in rejoicing. Yeah, yeah. And that's I what that. I thought of when it said, you know, rejoice again. I say rejoice, and that the the rejoicing doesn't end. Um, I mean, the earth still rejoices for its Lord. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure which one that's in, but every single one of those long sections that you said was part of this week's Come Follow Me, all, all of them have the triumphal entry yeah. <laughs> in, in them. So, yeah, I was looking in John to see if it was there. But I'm not sure. So, can we go ahead and sing? Yeah.
Okay, so we've talked about it, and here is the tune from Horatio Parker, uh, along with the words from Charles Wesley. Rejoice, the Lord is King, your Lord and King adore. Mortals give thanks and sing and triumph evermore. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again, I say, rejoice. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again, I say, rejoice. The Lord, the Savior, reigns, the God of truth and love. When he had purged our stains, he took his seat above. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again, I say, rejoice. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again, I say, rejoice. His kingdom cannot fail. He rules o'er earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell to Christ the Lord are given. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice. Rejoice again, I say, rejoice. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice. Rejoice again, I say, rejoice. Well, friends, thank you for joining us today as we discuss the hymn, Rejoice, the Lord is King. As always, it's a joy to be with you and to discuss the hymns. If you'd like to connect with us, please email us at knowinghim at gmail.com or contact us through our website, knowinghim.weebly.com. We'd love to hear what you think about the podcast and about the hymns. In the meantime, I hope you'll join us next week as we sing our way to knowing him.